like I guess that's the thing is like it feels like <clears throat> Democrats and independents are coming from such a deficit that they can kind of only gain ground. Right. Which is sort of an interesting thing. So like despite all the like doom and gloom of this well, okay, let's we let's start. start. Yeah, we should start recording. Okay. Oh, wait, one yeah. second. There's a dog squeaking a toy right outside my office. Let me go grab it. I love it. <laughs> Give me that squeaky toy. Hello, Alaska. This is Pat Race. And this is Matt Buxton. And this is a podcast about Alaska. All right. It's been well, a while, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, we typically go into, like, you know, the Alaska summer hibernation mode. It's uh, it's not uh, it's not unusual for us to go out and be busy in the summertime and then come back and look at politics a little bit closer in the fall and winter. Um, but I, you know, I think that this year's, <laughs> this year's been unusual. So I think that we've, you know, for me at least, stepping away from doing stuff like this has been more out of necessity than out of, um, you know, real any real desire or whatever. Like I haven't, it's not that I haven't been home a lot, but I, <laughs> but I have been <laughs> busy trying to keep the business afloat and trying to like shift, um, you know, shift income streams and things like that to, to you know, get through this pandemic and make sure that everything works on the other side. It's a lot of. Um, you know, there's a lot of change right now. So I think that that's yeah. why I haven't been that accessible um, for this kind of discussion lately. I think my, yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel for you. I think uh, a lot of people are going through a lot of really tough stuff right now. I think for me, you know, honestly, it's been tough mustering a lot of like energy and interest in anything right now. It's been, it's yeah. almost like, you know, I'm going through mild depression right now about being you know six months into a pandemic i mean you know it's like a you know tired you know exhausted constantly you know lack of interest in everything but but we got a lot of interesting stuff to talk about here so i think you know honestly i kind of hate i well hold on let's not let's not breeze by that because i i want to acknowledge like it's been it has been like a it has been felt highly viscous like doing anything is really hard right now and like i've it feels like i'm like trying to run through knee-deep molasses right you know you're yeah like, that's actually really I keep, good at, yeah i keep estimating things for clients i'm like i will have that for you next week and then like three weeks later i'm sitting down and being like how is that not done yet and um yeah. I, I saw a great thread the other day about someone that's just like i you know for for all of us type a folks that are used to kind of getting things done and are really um you know disappointed when we don't it, it's, it's really this it's really important to be able to uh, just accept that things are going to take a little longer and, and not yeah. just be accepting of that in yourself, but also of the like other people around you. Cause it's like, there's no sense in just like beating each other up over deadlines right now. Cause everyone's going through so much weird stuff. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think we do need, everybody needs to be a little more uh, kind, I think to themselves and a little accepting of their own sort of the fact that, you know, we're, everyone's going through an extra- incredibly sort of tough thing. I think, every, you know, there's different, um, degrees of of difficulty people are going through but it doesn't necessarily um discount you know what your own personal struggles are right now so i think everybody you know myself included needs to just be a little more a little more kind a little more um understanding of where they're at so but anyways what i was gonna say (laughs) is that i typically really i really don't like the political season that much i'm i i really enjoy you know and and probably as you might guys might be able to tell from the podcast is that we really like session. We like the kind of the crunchy poli- you know, the crunchy sort of policy and kind of the weird sort of machinations of that. And but this year, you know, it really is interesting. And I think um, so. We just came off the primary. It was uh, sort of settled this week, um, certified, so we know what the kind of general election ballot looks like. I think uh, coming out of primary day there was really kind of a lot of doom and gloom. Um, You know, several sort of moderate, what we kind of would consider as like adult in the room Republicans got knocked off, um, beaten by kind of party, I would call them party loyalist Republicans, um, people who, um, you know, sort of have the PFD and fiscal ruin kind of, you know, over everything. Um, But I think when you start to unpack it, as we kind of have been doing in preparation for this podcast, there's a lot more interesting sort of nuance, I think, going on here. And I think it's it's not the sort of, it's not as doom and gloom, I think, as uh, 
as people might have first thought, I think there's a lot of room in here for for a little bit of hope that things will be, I think, not a total mess, but, you know, so we'll see. So, but I think, so we'll, we'll start to break down. We want to talk about some of the individual races here and some of the big themes about kind of what we're going to see next year over the next couple of years um, now that we have this sort of beginning of an election under, under our belt here. Yeah, I, you know, you, you mentioned party loyalists. And I, I think that's kind of a weird way of framing it just because the party, it, it, it sort of betrays how much the party has changed. You know, when you've got yeah. someone primarying uh, John Coghill, like John Coghill is part of sort of this like legacy Alaska Republican like family, the sort of definitive uh, of what it means to be a Republican. His his dad, the nickname that his dad got was Mister Republican, right? And so, you know, Coghill, yeah. Coghill comes from the 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 definitive Republican family in Alaska, and it's uh, it's weird to see the party shift so much that he doesn't fit in into that anymore. Yeah, it's like it's Dunleavy, really loyalist or whatever kind of brand that that is. You know, it's a sort of you know, it feels more tied tied up. It fe- I don't. Even, yeah, maybe a little bit of like a dasher libertarianism, but I feel like it's a little bit more tied up in like kind of the volume and angst of of national politics. Um, yeah, you know, it feels like a lot of people that aren't necessarily um, driven by local issues so much as like fueled up by kind of national rhetoric um, that maybe doesn't play out in the same way here. Um, and and that's something it play, I want. plays out that same way in uh, Republican primaries, though. That's for yeah. sure. Well, <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting because I think that like in Alaska, we don't we don't organize so much around party as we do around policy, and sometimes that aligns with party. Sometimes the party has you know the, the same poli- policy agenda. But what we've seen in the last you know decade or so is a lot of coalitions of legislators, both in the House and the Senate, that organize around a set of policy and across party lines and so um it'll be interesting i think to see what are the policies this year that unite people and and how do they unite you know once this once the elections all shake out and so identifying some of that now is i think going to give us clues as to what will happen later so i'm curious what you think some of the big policy issues this year in the legislature are going to be well, I mean, the big one obviously is going to be the budget, right? And is sort of the state, you know, how we, you know, what we value and how we're going to pay for it. And I think, um, you know, wrapped up in that is going to be obviously the the size of the permanent fund dividend. So a lot of the people who won on this election, you know, are these people who kind of ran on the PFD, you know. And even though you know, I feel like it that the, this idea of calling for the full PFD is really losing, I think, steam at this point. It still carries enough weight in a lot of these races, and I and I think, oh man, we could totally unpack why these people won. And I think there's a, there's a lot more than just the PFD at play here. I think there's a lot of like style issues and stuff like that that are tied up into it, and and, and kind of all those other things. But so we'll put that aside for now. But um, so the budget, the PFD, I think. Um, you know, what kind of state services we're going to expect. Um, you know, you have the ferry, you have all these sort of services that the state pays for, um, you know, what's going to happen to them. And then I think, what are we going to do about revenue? I think what kind of revenue is there? Uh, what kind of revenue actually works? How quickly does it come online? All those sort of are, you know, kind of key, key questions. I think, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, is it now former budget director, you know, uh, interim president of the University of Alaska system, Pat Pitney laid it out well, is that, you know, we have a structural deficit right now in Alaska. Um so it's going to require changes to state law that that dictate spending. You know, that's sort of we we're talking about education, we're talking about Medicaid, we're talking about all these other sort of programs that are sort of dictated by state by state law. So those that need to change in some way, you also are going to need to increase new revenue, and we're going to have to talk about the PFD. So all these sort of things are coming to play, and I think that you know I think there's a lot of political exhaustion, and as people are just saying. You guys really haven't figured it out. Like we still have to be worrying about this, and you know, the, and of course, you know, the pandemic doesn't make anything any easier in balancing this sort of equation. But I think there is a lot of fatigue on it. I think people are tired of having to hear, you know, regardless of kind of how you feel about, you know, where you wanted to go. I think there's exhaustion that we are still having this conversation, you know, eight years later. Yeah, and I think to some extent, you, you we're just seeing um, 
you know, in times of crisis, people want something new and different. And so there's a strong anti-incumbent sentiment. And I think that in Alaska, the last, you know, the last few election cycles, we've seen a lot of anti-incumbency voting. And I don't know that it's so much about the alternative uh, policy solution as it is about just not liking the direction we're going right now. Yeah. And the direction, yeah, I mean, in the direction we're going right now has been kind of, you know, sort of kicking the can every year, um, you know. And that's the sort of the thing I think is really important to remember about some of these incumbents that got knocked off. Um, you know, you have Senator Kathy Geisel, you have several representatives, Jennifer Johnson, Chuck Kopp, um, Gabrielle Du. I think kind of the thing, if you kind of looked at these, you know, the, the sort of the... the you know, the cop and the Johnson and the Geisel and the Coghill kind of, for example, the main really po- policy priority, honestly, was that was to not make devastating cuts to the state budget and to not implement any taxes. I mean, that those were really kind of the, that was sort of their values, I think. Um, and and so that meant that they were OK on sort of pulling the PFD lever and rationing it yeah. down. I think, you know, you, there were sort of key lines from the set this last session where people really did, they said explicitly, you know, I'm not interested in implementing an income tax in service of paying out a dividend, you know, and if anybody wanted to get anything done and have them on board, um, that was going to be the direction, you know, taxes were not going to be on the table. And so moving forward, I think that, you know, and I think some of that sort of, you know, these are people that are kind of beholden to the oil industry, um, are kind of beholden to resource industry and kind of, you know, from wealthier districts, you know, so they really don't, you know, for them, um, an income tax is going to be far more, uh, a far bigger deal than PFD reductions. And so, but that's not the case for everybody in Alaska. And so, um, so I think sort of removing those people who are kind of the impediment to um, discussions about new revenue is going to be really interesting. I, I, I don't hold out a lot of hope yeah. that there's going to be a lot more um, you know, new revenue talk, to be honest, but, um, but we'll see, right? What you're talking about is like this idea of conservatism, um, in the sense of let's change as little as possible. And I think that that's really what, you know, that's kind of what got us where we are is that we've, we've been unwilling to, to make changes either on either, on either side, like there's kind of two directions we can go. And one is to sort of just fold up government. And the other one is to implement some kind of revenue, um, measure, whether that's a tax or, or whatever, but it's, but I think that we've been just kind of writing this middle line of like, let's not do anything, um, you know, for, for quite a while. And I think people are frustrated that there's not a, you know, whatever, whatever solution it is, we're not making steps to to move in that direction right because right now like you said this there's this we're kind of over the edge of the fiscal cliff you know we've been talking about it for (laughs) yeah you know since to what 2002 i think was frank murkowski started like making noise about it but um but it's uh it's something's got to give at some point and so this year's going to be really pivotal yeah i think and one of the really big tests i think that we're going to see early on is so on Friday, so we're recording this on Sunday, September 6th. And so on Friday, September 4, the Alaska Supreme Court um, released a ruling that found that this plan to basically borrow a billion dollars to pay off um, oil tax credits um, was un- unconstitutional, right? And so now we have this yeah. big question. And actually, I think it, and that plan really, I think, got under the radar a lot more than it should have Now, now that I'm kind of reviewing it. In, in you know with the Supreme Court ruling in mind where it was basically you know it was sort of setting up a way to prioritize paying off these oil tax credits and uh, over everything else you know so it doesn't doesn't have to compete in the same way that everything else does because it becomes debt you know we have to pay our debt right so now that's gonna we have this sort of 740 million million dollar question on the books that we have you know that ostensibly we need to deal with eventually um, but I think it's it's gonna be quickly sort of a uh, interesting sort of values issue um, with this legislature, right? Are you because you know the state has already um, backed out of its debts on other areas? These sort of agreements, you know, you look at school bond debt reimbursement, where um, the state has all of a sudden decided that it doesn't need to pay, you know, these reimburse these municipalities for the school bond debt that they took out, with the assumption that the state was going to pay, you know, help pay for it. So they decided that's okay. They're gonna gonna um, 
you know, pull the rug yeah. out under municipalities. So we, you know, property taxes have gone up because of this policy, right? Uh, That's so an interesting comparison is the is the school bond debt versus the the oil tax credits. Yeah. I mean, I think in government, like you you need to try to honor your word as best as you can. You know, you like your reputation and ability to do business is on the line, right? So right. like if the government screws everyone over, they're they're not going to be able to work with anyone. And so the expectation is that, you know, the government's not going to be there for you. Right. And so that's not a good good road to go down. So it's probably, you know, I, th- I think that it would have been better to have paid this off and, and to have honored the school bond. Right. You know, debt obligations, um, and to sort of sunset both things in a way that, in a, in a way that everyone sort of like maybe grumbled about it, but knew it was coming. Yeah, and it wasn't. And it was, just rel- like and the it was fair plug- and even, right? And so yeah, and so that's the question I think moving forward. So we've already set the precedent of not honoring the school bond debt. Is there what kind of push is there going to be to honor the oil tax thing? And I think this is this is kind of a, a really a fundamental question I think about kind of just the direction of the legislature, right? Because you know for so long you know there's sort of been this sort of you know we hold the oil industry be just this kind of untouchable yeah. sort of unassailable. Or, yeah. it, you know it creates jobs that that mostly aren't Alaska jobs, and it creates a lot of revenue that kind of doesn't really go to Alaska. Um, well, it, it creates a lot of revenue for Alaska, and it creates a lot of jobs for Alaska. It's just that there are there are be- ways that those could be improved. Yes. Okay. Fair enough. But but anyways, uh, you know, I think there, I think, um, you know, I, I think there's a lot of frustration, right? That that you know we haven't been able to. I think th- there's a, at least a feeling that you know the oil tax system that we're under isn't really fairly written for Alaska. We're not getting what we you know kind of rightly deserve out of it, right? There's sort of all those sort of questions, you know, sort of arguments tied up in that. And there's, so I think it's a lot of frustration that, you know, that this is an issue that I think a lot of people would like to see pushed, but for whatever reason isn't. So, you know, it spawns stuff like, you know, the, the ballot measure to raise oil taxes, right? And that is, I think, born out of a frustration that if the legislature could just do it, you know, fairly, that we wouldn't need it here. So anyways, seeing how they handle this issue moving forward, I think could will kind of shape that, right? So if they, you know, are running to pay the oil tax credits over the school bond debt, I think it, you know, it's kind of that's sort of the status quo. But if they decide, hey, look, we're going to have to defer these, we're not going to pay them all out at, at once, at least. I think that's kind of a shift. I think that's sort of an interesting shift that's going to be happening here, um, if it does come to pass. And so, um, I think it's going to be really hard for anybody to try to, you know, to say with a serious face that we need to be paying all these oil tax credits back right away. Well, I mean, we're we're on hard times, right? right? Like, so we're going to have to pr- prioritize our debt, you know, and and kind of figure out what are the things we need to pay back, what are the th- obligations we can postpone, and that's just the, what that's the reality of you know that's the reality of what a lot of individuals are going through right, right now at this very second. You know, income is not matching your expenses, and so you have to decide whether you're going to you know buy food or pay the electric bill and. Um, you know, that's where, that's the, the reality for Alaska right now. So, so, okay, let's, let's dive into this spreadsheet. We've got this spreadsheet, um, that kind of lists the house races and we've gone through it to talk about some of which ones we think are kind of interesting and sort of tally up, do some, uh, you know, peanut gallery, uh, armchair Mm -hmm. math on, on how things might shake out. And let's just maybe start at the top and go through the house districts that we think are, are kind of contentious and interesting uh, this year. And and I, the first one is uh, Fairbanks District 1, uh, Fairbanks Downtown, and that's Christopher Quist is running against Bart Laban. In 2018, Laban, uh, you know, famously won that by just, you know, a razor-thin margin. Uh, there were multiple recounts, and it was, um, it, it, you know, it's quite a circus, right? And um, it didn't come down to a coin toss, but it almost, it was one of those ones that almost became yeah. a coin toss, right? Right. It was one vote. Yeah. Um, so, so, so is that as tight this year as it was two years ago? Or do you think Lebon's going to have a better shot as an incumbent? It's, you know, it, honestly, it's a difficult one, um, to look at. So there's several, sort of several ways you can kind of come at this, right? So, um, Laban ended up being, um, you know, a bip- member of the bipartisan coalition. I think, um, you know, all of Fairbanks jumped into it pretty much last time around. So I think that was part of it. Um, and Fairbanks, I think, is a district that really does stick together kind of across political lines. They do what's right for Fairbanks. 
So I think that earned him a lot mm-hmm. of credit. I think um, Christopher Quest is an assembly member. I think that there's some kind of questions about his likability and his sort of ability as a candidate. Um, but kind of importantly, though, and this is going to be kind of the key sort of metric for a lot of these races, is that Elise Galvin did very well here. And, you know, Elise Galvin won this seat, I think, by a few hundred votes um, in 2018. Scott Kawasaki, the senator, former rep, um, won it by a lot of votes. Um, he handily won it. And, um, yeah. and so I think there's a lot of kind of numbers here that kind of are at play that would make it make you think it, it could be pretty competitive, right? And it, it's going to depend on how Quist runs his campaign, how LeBon runs his campaign. But it's sort of the underlying numbers in this race, it is a Democratic kind of seat now. And um, the numbers there would suggest that a Democrat could win it. And so whether or not this Democrat can win it is sort of the other question. But I think that sort of the, the underlying sort of basics of it could put it into play. And I've heard, I've heard Do you think, political oh, kind of people looking at it and being like, oh, yeah, yeah, the numbers look good. So, Do you think in terms of like, um, you know, organizing around policy, do you think LeBon is going to be open to a, a more bipartisan coalition next year again? Or do you think he's going to be more interested in, in jumping on board with like more conservative? Well, I, th- I think um, you know, Dunley- so. Dunleavy Republicans. So this is going to be interesting, right? So so you kind of have like a co- several different like kind of potential if you kind of you kind of look at how the will organize and work your way backwards, I think that kind of gets you to where people might land, right? I think, you know, I think there, if if you know if you have um, you know Speaker Regiment again, I think I could see him coming along to it. Uh, I think a far right group, I think he'll go along with it. Me, you know, I don't know if he'll go along with that. Honestly, I think it kind of depends on where we're, you know, kind of what outlay that is. I do think that there's kind of the potential for, you know, a more Republican, sort of moderate Republican leadership, you know, kind of along, you know, Steve Thompson, who's the um, other rep from Fairbanks, really well liked. If you had kind of a moderate sort of sort of traditional kind of Republican, I think that he would be, you know, in there. I think that's sort of we're talking sort of tradition, traditional Republican that would be able to pick off um, independents, maybe rural uh, Democrats, that kind of thing, as the sort of power core. Yeah, um, yeah I, don't, I think I think that you know I think he's probably open to it. I think the, it's difficult though because I think there is sort of a political pressure to kind of come back to roost for a lot of these Republicans, and I think you kind of saw why. But you know, I think I think uh, I think I think that Fairbanks kind of it does its own thing, and I think they're not really be- as beholden to the kind of national political national sort of political yeah sort of pressures so let's jump to district six so that's fairbanks Ileson, denali upper yukon nanana yeah so this is like one of the largest uh legislative districts in the entire country um you know it reaches from starts in denali goes up into nanana grabs like a bunch of in, um rural villages interior rural villages comes back down grabs a little bit of fairbanks and then goes out to the canadian border <laughs> so it's huge um, it presents a pretty difficult kind of district to campaign in. Um, it's a really crowded race this year, though. So you have the Republican. Um, so this is a formally held by um, uh, Dave Talrico, the mayor of the Denali Borough, kind of a well-liked sort of sort of traditionally moderate or not moderate, traditionally kind of conservative sort of guy. He takes off. He retires this year. Republican that's running in this race is Mike Cronk, who's uh, appeared in blackface. So great winner there um then you have like several um independent candidates in the race and then on the democratic side you have julia inilica and i am kind of bullish on this seat i think i've heard good arguments about why it's maybe a difficult seat for a democrat to win which is basically the the population centers in it um are a lot more conservative but I think she's been doing a good job about reaching out to rural Alaska, kind of is is listening to a lot of issues. I think um, she she pinged one that was interesting about how um, this year's um, uh, moose permit uh, draw um, was moved online from in-person applications, I believe. And so um, it basically benefited anybody who had good internet. So, you know, and a lot of places in this district uh, were locked out completely um, because they yeah. don't have the internet to get to it. And so that kind of stuff to me 
is the sort of stuff you need to be doing, you know, that that really tells a district that you are serious about representing them um, and are aware of those issues. I think that the numbers are still going to be pretty hard in this one. I don't think this is a uh, I don't don't I, I don't have to look up the numbers. And no, this is not a uh, there's five people in this race, though. Yeah, right? So this is not like an Elise Galvin district at all. Um, I think I think there's I think it's a good I think that she's a good candidate. Um and I think that, you know, having younger people in the legislature is all good. So I think I maybe there's a little bit of me projecting onto it, but I think that there's a little bit of I think there's some good sort of basics going on there, at least. So, so you think that the, the main race here is Julia Hanilka versus Mike Kronk and that the three other candidates are sort of also rans, but might shave some of the points off of either side yeah i think well so there's um elijah um in that race i can't, I can't verhagen I can't begin to verhagen yeah. yeah um he is uh his brother is the mayor of nanana he's got some so he's got some clout right. i think um some name recognition so i think um you know i think he's probably got he, you know he's probably in the top three potential in there um whether or not he has competitive or if he shaves you know Anilka is also from Nanana, so you know whether or not that bites into her or not is kind of the question here. So, and Don Young won this seat by like two to one. So. Yeah, yeah. So that's so that's a seat that like it, it seems likely that it will be someone who will uh, caucus more conservative will come out of that. But it's possible that with so many people in the race, something really weird could happen. Yeah. All right, well, let's jump ahead to um, District 15, which is Anchorage-Elmendorf, and that's Lynn Franks versus David Nelson. Uh, what can you tell me about that race? So this is the interesting one, right? So um, this seat has been held by Representative Gabrielle Ledoux, um, charged for election fraud. Um, and so, you know, she's been holding on to the district kind of through a pretty strong sort of concerted, potentially a little shady mail-in vote system, you know, or absentee game. Didn't work out for her this year. She lost by a huge margin. Yeah, um, she got cleaned out. This is a, this is a, I think this is kind of one of the districts that frequently comes up in my mind as a, remind me why... You know, we can't have why uh, a person of color or 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 somebody who's not white represented. Is it? You know, it's a quite a diverse district. It's um, it's sort of Muldoon, East Anchorage. It's got the military base on it. Um, and uh, Elise Galvin did win it in eighteen by you know, a few hundred, about a hundred and fifty votes. Um, I don't know. You know how comp- I've heard mixed things about the competitiveness of you know just the quality of the candidates in it. Um, I think it's a sort of race where you know I think in the in the right kind of circumstances it could be quite competitive. I don't know honestly. It's hard. It's super hard to kind of under you know sort of see this district um, and see how it plays out. I think that um, you know it's one of those districts where it has a lot of military base on it too, um, and so. You know the the potential for the presidential election to come into play here could be potentially pretty big. Um, you know, I think you look at kind of how military voters vote. You know, oftentimes it's kind of straight down the ticket. So, um, so yeah. So we'll see. Yeah, for me, this one's really interesting because I think that um, you know uh, Gabrielle Ledoux was always a sort of a wink and a nod Republican. Like she was a very blue Republican, and and I think that. Uh, you know, that's might be why she fit in so well in this district. And I, th- it, to me, I don't know David Nelson very well, but if he is, if he is very, very conservative, um, you know, there's a chance that Lynn Franks could do something here. Um, she ran last year and didn't get a huge percentage of the, of the vote. Yeah. Um, but that was, again, that was against someone that's like a little more center of the beach. So, um, you know, it might be a different, it might be, benefit her if david nelson is is very conservative she might have a better chance this year yeah and i think they're the really um the other thing to keep in mind right is that these are going to be relatively small dollar races so in a year where you know the presidential race the u.s senate race the u.s house race are going to take up a lot of oxygen in the room um for campaigning so you know i think um you know, as we saw in the primaries, you know, the ground game being able to knock doors in a, you know, socially, you know, COVID responsible way to be able to 
get out there and wrangle volunteers and do that sort of stuff, you know, is going to be more important than ever. I think you're not going to be able to see, you know, there's just not the same kind of room to have, you know, candidate forums and the sort of traditional sort of ways of differentiating you from another candidate. So I think, yeah, it's going to really, you know, I think this year's the, you know, we haven't, there's a talk earlier in the year about how, the pandemic was impacting campaigning and we haven't really heard it talked about a whole lot since then, but I think it's going to be, I think being able to get your name out there in kind of new and interesting ways is going to be really important and sort of, that's sort of un, yet to be determined in a lot of these races. So, All right. So district 25 is Calvin Schrage versus Mel Gillis. Um, why is that one interesting to you? So this is another one where, um, it's it's another Elise Galvin district. Um, she won it by two hundred nearly three hundred votes. Um, but more importantly, um, the Democratic legislative candidate in this race has been quite competitive every year. And so, um, yeah, uh, it's a couple. Pat and Patty Higgins have kind of bounced between running for it uh, every couple of years. Um, they've come within two to 300 votes. I think the last time it was 300 votes behind the challenger. So, um, yeah, even going back to 2012, it looks like, um, the race there was just, you know, a few percentage points off. And so the biggest thing in this race, honestly, is that, um, the, the, the progressives have is advantage is that they, um, Calvin Trachey is not Pat Higgins. Um, I'm going to be honest, you know, I, I, I'm not, I've never been super impressed by Pat. Um, I think, you know, he might be his politics might be fine, but I think as a candidate, he left a lot to be desired. Um, and so, from what I, everything I've heard, Trage's kind of this younger candidate who's been sort of pretty actively working this district for a long time now. Um, and then on the other end of it, you have Mel Gillis, who was appointed to the seat. He's a sort of cigar-toting big guy, you know, lodge owning sort of Alaska man, but is maybe a little bit of a dinosaur at the same time. So I think um, you look at those numbers, looking at um, the work Shaggy's done, I think that's it's potentially could be really competitive. I think a lot of people are seeing this as sort of the number two, I think, um, biggest race um, where progressives can could, could pick up a seat. All right. So and then right next door, District 27, um, the uh, Anchorage Basher, East Anchorage District, we've got Liz Snyder versus Lance Pruitt. And that's actually kind of a rematch, right? So we, they, right. we got to see that in 2018. It was very close. And Lance Pruitt, I don't think, has done a lot to like uh, gain ground since then. He's been he's he's been very unpopular in the legislature the last uh, couple of years, and I'm sure that people in his district have noticed that. Yeah. So I mean, it was really close. Um, you know, I think in 2018, um, so Elise Galvin won it by 200 votes. Uh, Begich won it by 200 votes. Um, you know, Liz Snyder lost it by less than 200 votes. So, um, you know, I think there, and so I, I honestly, that, that kind of split is really interesting to me. Why, you know, why did, you know, a bunch of people voted, you know, progressive in those two races, but then looked at it and said, oh, well, I'll pick Lance over Liz. Um, I think, you know, after that election, Lance, you know, ran, he looked at, you know, he looked at this tight race, looked at everything and then said, I'm going to be really pro Dunleavy. I'm going to totally toe the line for Dunleavy. I'm going to, um, going to help him with everything. I'm going to, um, really align myself with, uh, his vetoes and all this sort of stuff. And it was quite a weird direction to go in, to be honest. Um, yeah, well, he also had like his, his wife was working for the Dunleavy administration and being paid quite, right. quite well. Pulling like 15 thou. Yeah. So, a I'm, month, yeah. So, so it wasn't that big of a mystery, right? <laughs> no. Right. And so, um, so I think, you know, and Liz has been, you know, I think she's kind of, I think, I think breaking into these races for any new candidates is always kind of a, as a learning trial. I think that it's why rematches, um, especially when you turn around, I think she's, she's raised the most out of anybody. So in any race and it's over like $130,000 now, which is just a ludicrous amount for any legislative race, let alone a house race. Um, and so she's, um, got a lot of momentum behind her, a lot of interest. And I think, um, the numbers there would put her in a, in a pretty good spot, honestly. So, um, 
Yeah, Lance has always been yeah. kind of interesting to me. Like he, like he always seemed like sort of the um, kind of traditional Republican rising star. Like I think in like sort of the um, in the vein of like the Republicans that basically got ran out this year. You know, like the Coghill Geisel crowd. Like he would have been a kind of up and coming, um, you know, Republican, and he's kind of had to recast himself almost in the last year. And I don't know if it's like, if he's going through sort of value changes himself or just kind of reading the tea leaves and, and, you know, he either has to decide that he's going to be the, this, um, you know, more established Republican in, in a weirder Republican party, or he's just not going to be able to do the, do it. Right. So it's, Right. It's a very strange predicament he's in because he's always seemed like like he's a you know very party party oriented, um, but that the party has kind of shifted so much that it's now he's having to do and say more ridiculous things that don't really align with kind of the the early shape that his career was taking. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of these people saw themselves. I think Lance Pruitt's, the Mia Costellos of the world. Um, you know, another Anchorage senator, um, I think kind of saw themselves as future U.S. reps. You know, I think that they saw themselves as having a a long, you know, kind of rising uh, profile in Alaska. Right. And this think, is a career, career path. Yeah. And I think um, I think now that they're seeing things shifting, I think they need to kind of reconfigure themselves. And I think it's honestly kind of a shame. It's It's sort of this, you know, I think it kind of reveals them as sort of gutless at the end of the day if you can't like if you, if you are shifting so wildly kind of at the political winds i think yeah i can't see someone who's sort of shifting like this to be all that inspiring you know all that yeah. you know that doesn't really win my vote as you know mr conservative voter either and so i think i think it's just it's sort of you sell yourself out and and I think people can smell that a little bit. So whether or not, you know, whether or not it plays out in this race is going to be really interesting. He's not quite like boat parade level Republican. And I think that like, <laughs> that's not going to get people fired up to go vote for him. So, yeah. you know, he, he might benefit from people coming out to vote for Trump, um, you know, and voting along those party lines. But I think that in this in this race, um, you know, he's really, really vulnerable. But but I don't mm-hmm. think that we, we're going to, you know, if he loses, I don't think that'll be the last we see of him. I think that, you know, Lance Pruitt's like one of those guys that's just going to be in and around government for the rest of his life. You know, he's going to be, yeah. you know, 60 years old and have some job under some administration somewhere. Yeah. You know, you know, Anchorage Assembly is a place to go, right? You know, if he loses, he could run for mayor, right? There's like everybody else is doing. <laughs> yeah, there's what? How do, what do you have like 15 mayoral candidates something, this year or something? something like that? Yeah, yeah. I try to not get too. I've got enough. Uh, man, Alaska politics. I uh, an- the Anchorage stuff. I try not to get too off in the weeds on, but yeah. uh, it's, it's an <laughs> interesting may- mayoral election ahead of you. Um, yeah. Okay, so let's move ahead here. We've got another one that's interesting is is 28, and that's South Anchorage, Hillside, Girdwood area. You've got Suzanne LaFrance uh, versus James Kaufman, uh, and yeah. also Benjamin Fletcher and Adolph Garcia are, are in that race as well. I think Adolph is a write-in, technically. So. Oh, okay. Um, but, yeah, it's another interesting race. This is um, Jennifer Johnston's seat. Um, she lost to James Kaufman in the primary. Um, kind of, you know, he's sort of of this sort of ilk that is – you know, at least the sort of outside thinking is that these are people who are incre- incredibly um, un uh, uh, unqualified for these seats and kind of lack of knowledge, lack of plan, lack of anything. So whether, you know, I think, and so Susan LaFrance is a sort of well-liked Anchorage Assemblywoman. She just, just came off a, a win in South Anchorage um, that I think a lot of people expected to be uh, a conservative win. Um and so she's got the credit credit credentials for it. I think this is a district that did go to Young. Let me double check that real quick. So yeah, this is one that um, Don Young won. So if we're using the Young Elise Galvin index, it's you know it's advantage Republican um, going ahead. Uh, you know yeah, Dunleavy won it by 300 votes. Um, so it's a difficult, it's an uphill battle to, to go, but I think, you know, it's, it's sort of the one where I think people are rolling the dice where they're saying, you know, you got a good candidate, you know, and it, it sort of, I think is rolling the dice with specifically, you know, what kind of happens with the, um, the presidential race, right? Are, you know, in, 
by 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 November, are we going to be, you know, are is it going to be so heated that everybody's mo- motivated to be voting, or is it going to be such a place where, um, you know, Republicans are, you know, kind of the turnout it ends up being a little depressed. You know, is it a place where it looks like the writing is on the wall for the for Trump and turnout isn't as great? You know, or is it going to be, you know, both sides are so fired up that you know that turnout is high on both ends and, and sort of the underlying Republican numbers, you know, boost them? Or is it, you know, that the Republican numbers are low and Democratic numbers are high? You know, I think that's, these are, that's kind of the like the the little, the knob that um, you can turn on all these races and it, it, you know, sort of moves things probably five or so points probably in either direction. So, yeah, I think I don't, I, I think this one was probably going to fall Republican, both because of the, that Don Young you know, voting trend that you've identified, but also because the it looks like the the sort of the third third party and and right in candidates in this district are gonna um, aren't gonna really help LaFrance's chances. <laughs> Ooh, that's a fun <laughs> saying, LaFrance's chances. Um, but yeah, I think like Benjamin Fletcher, if you go to his website, his kind of main uh, issues page highlights the environment, education, new energy initiatives. You know, yeah. trans transitioning off of oil and gas. You know, that's that's the same sort of thing that progressives are saying. So even if he's running as a as a non-party representative, he might take um, he might take more votes away from LaFrance than from uh, from than from Kaufman. Yeah. So, so yeah, anyways, that one's, uh, it will, it'll be interesting to keep an eye on though. And then, yeah. um, uh, 29 Kenai, North Kenai, Nikiski, Seward, Hope. Um, I, I didn't have this down as, as a, as a very interesting race, but you brought this one up. It's Ben Carpenter versus Paul Dale. And you pointed out that, um, that this might be interesting just because Ben Carpenter is kind of the, like, um, you know, almost Eastman level Republican. He might be um, worse than Eastman, honestly. He wrote a, just a, uh, I mean, awful he's, he's, op ed recently that was in I mean, in must must read Alaska, and it was it was it was all predicated on this idea that um, you know that that only six percent of the deaths are 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 real in, you know in COVID, and that this all yeah I mean, it was just all that like weird Trumpy QAnon comorbidity stuff that's been going around, and like I so he seems just seems kind of like way out way way and, out you know the, he's the, the guy right. that was comparing you know the mask mandate in anchorage or in in the legislature to the holocaust uh when challenged about it he said that hitler wasn't wasn't a racist wasn't a white supremacist and which i don't know was he defending hitler or was he defending white supremacists i don't know but just kind of just sort of across the board just sort of awful and so he's got a challenger, Paul Dale, who's actually, um, from my understanding, relatively well-known and well-liked, has a decent amount of political capital in the community, has been running actually a little quiet, kind of tidy little campaign. I think he's outraised Carpenter. I think he's got um, some, actually some establishment Republican support, you know, sort of quietly behind the scenes. Um, so yeah, it's, it's one of those ones that could be interesting. It could be a surprise. It might, probably won't be, but you know, it could be. And I think... It's one of those ones, though, where you look at the the challenger, and I think you know if you, I think that's the kind of guy who makes a lot of sense as an independent in a Republican organization, right? I think, um, or a, you know, or a moderate Republican organization. I think that there's a lot of these kind of candidates who are, tr- you know, I think I think we've kind of fallen into a trap in the last years, just a few years, just by kind of because of how organization has gone, that we kind of all assume that independents are going to be progressive. And I think that's not necessarily true. I think that, I think a lot of these independents are truly independent. It's just sort of been the, the sort of moderate kind of independent place for them to be is with the Democrats and is in a more progressive kind of or more moderately progressive kind of organization. So, you know, I think you look at a lot of these independents and if they win, they're not really locks for a Democratic majority or anything like that but they are a lock i think for a moderate majority and i think there's a lot of different flavors that you could end up with there i think it's so and that's i think the same for um 31 this is their seat um, formerly held by paul seaton who kind of made some tactical errors i would say in that in this district for kena this is homer south kena i can see left and ilchik um one by Sarah Vance, who is sort of in the trio, I think, of, of the Ben Carpenter, David Eastman, Sarah Vance sort of cadre of just kind of miserable, sort of unlikable people who, you know, her sort of claim to fame was that she uh, 
you know, from her from her office in Juneau, uh, bashed a bunch of high school students who wrote her letters for not addressing her properly, you know, um, you know, and kind of using it as if they can't address me as representative Sarah Vance, then we should be not funding schools is kind of like the takeaway. It was so it was biz- this bizarre tactical decision. So she is facing an um, independent challenge by Kelly Cooper, who's an assemblywoman who on um, the Kenai Assembly, really well liked, from my understanding, really kind of the adult in the room, basically, um, kind of candidate. And so I think there's a lot of there's a lot of interest there. Uh, again, you know, it's, you know, uh, Paul Seaton ran in the same way as an independent against Vance um, and lost. And I think that a lot of that goes to the underlying numbers of the district. I think a lot of people are not going to be super engaged in these legislative races and are just going to be voting kind of party line. So it's, you know, it's a lot of uphill there, but I think if anybody could do it, I think Cooper is pretty well situated to be able to do that, especially because now we kind of Vance in 2018, really, you know, she was the one who refused to debate, um, Carp or uh, uh, Seton because the venue served alcohol, um, and uh, and, and so now we have sort of she kind of got through sort of by hiding who she was, and I think now we've seen pretty well kind of who this person is, and I think um, that could be a negative for her, but again, you know, a lot of these races, you know, are, are just so difficult by by uh, by the numbers, right? The, the numbers just make these seats very difficult to win so okay so let's uh i'm gonna do some math here and you know basically of these seats that we've identified that are probably unlikely to change it does seem like there's uh, there are 20 of them um you know half of them are are either democrats or people who have caucused with a bipartisan coalition in in the past so we've got um so you've got 20 people like right out of the gate um barring any sort of like just wild wild upsets um, that are that are likely to form a coalition, and then of the eight or so races that we just talked about, you know, those are all uh, mostly conservative races that have a chance to either tip a more um, kind of centrist, independent, or um, or progressive. Um, and I think that uh, there's probably a non-zero number of those that are going to add to this. Uh, majority caucus next year and I think we're going to see I think it's safe to I think it's safe to say that we're not going to have this like Eastman run majority that you know there was kind of this picture being painted after the primary that like oh no all the Dunleavy guys are going to get together and form a caucus and it's going to be just like banana town um, up at the Capitol building but I think that the what I'm seeing is that we're probably going to have a um, sort of center centrist organization i say centrist but it's more of like a balanced coalition of right and left and center um of of politicians that are organized around this you know fundamental issue of how do we get our our budget in line and and what can we how do we plan for the future and how do we not go bankrupt and and how do we not spend down all of our savings and i I feel like that's um i think that's going to take precedent over any of the like wiggly social issues um you know, or anything like any of the weird, like, side party wedge issues that have divided people in the past. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think um, when you look at it, um, all a lot of the races that were won in the primary, you know, are just knocking off, you know, moderate Republicans and replacing them with conservative Republicans. And so, um, there, yeah, you look at the outlay of this, there's very few races, if any, where... Republicans are going to be able to reduce the number of Democrats in the legislature or independents. And so it's really, yeah, I think you're, you're, what we were talking about before is that Democrats are kind of coming from a deficit here and they can only really pick up. And so they're in a pretty decent spot. And so, um, yeah, it's going to really, I mean, honestly, it, it sort of divining what's going to happen is 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 impossible because there's just so much could, could happen with all these seats right now. But what I'm, you know, interested in is, is seeing where where this goes, right? You know, is this another, do we, by having this sort of moderate group again, do we end up with another year of kicking the can down the road? Right. Is it all, is it all just comp- middle ground compromise that doesn't produce any results? Yeah. And so, 
I, you know, I think I, one of the kind of interesting theories I'd heard a long time ago about paying out the big PFD is that, you know, that really runs down the clock, right? You know, I think it, and it runs down the clock on kicking the can. You can't kick it much longer, right? And so, you know, part of the thinking there is that, you know, if you back the big PFD and you drain everything, then they're going to have to do revenue and people are going to probably, you know, push come to shove are going to look at the oil industry again, you know, and I think that there's really not going to be much of an appetite to do personal individual taxes, at least right now. Well, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't I don't like that. I don't like that trajectory because I don't I think, OK, the reason we have ballot measure one is because the legislature doesn't have that doesn't have the, the stomach to actually tax the oil industry. The only time the legislature has actually really like done anything meaningful to to like bring in revenue from the oil company was like after the Vico scandal. And that was because there's kind of this like um, realization that that we'd been played and, uh, and a strong kind of like uh, ethical uh, argument that we needed to redo the oil taxes uh, to favor Alaska, and we got that for a while. But then, it, it, then you know, we have our short memories, and we forgot that, and it went away. So, I don't think the stomach is there to like actually confront the oil industry and to bring in more money from them. Also, right. like they're they don't have as much money as they used to have. You know, like they're they are legitimately running a, a, on a thinner um, margin than they have in the past. They're, they're producing mm-hmm. less and getting less money for it. And so there's, you know, like at some point you're bleeding turnips, but I mean, we do need to squeeze them, but how much can we get out of them is really a, a, a kind of a big question. And so right. the, yeah. so the, the thing that I'm, that I think is going to happen is I think that we're going to continue down this road of like not being willing to implement, if we're, if we're not willing to implement an income tax, if we're not willing to tax the oil companies, we're eventually going to just crack open the permanent fund and start spending our savings. And, and, you know, we, everyone thinks that's impossible because it's never been done before, but we keep doing things that have never been done before. And so I, right. I don't think we're very far away from just chewing up the permanent fund and saying like, well, it would either, either we spend the permanent fund or we're going to go bankrupt. And, and I don't know that, I don't know that we can protect it. It's going to be very hard to protect the permanent fund. And I think it's going to be very important for our future as a state to protect the permanent fund or to have at least a transitional plan for like, this is how we're investing it so that we, you know, can start building up savings again in the future. Um, right. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think, yeah, yeah. I think like my, yeah, my sort of outlay too is also like it, it is coming from a place where like a uh, sort of a privileged place where, you know, massive cuts to the budget and to services provided by state government are you, you know, are, are not going to be devastating to my personal life. Right. Or, or to whoever's kind of making that point. I think like, you know, contained in service cuts is a lot of damage to, you know, either sectors of the economy or individuals who rely on these services, Um, you know, education being one of them, university, Medicaid, pioneer homes, the ferry system. You know, there's a lot of massive pain that can be created here by kind of by reaching this fiscal cliff with no plan. So, right. um, Yeah, we're slowly dismantling our state and it's really hard to watch. So just to kind of like wrap up, put a pin on the Senate here, um, you know, do you think that we're going to see, you know, are we going to see kind of like the Lyman Hoffman, Donnie Olson, Jesse Keel, um, you know, maybe even like Tom Begich, are we going to see them align, do you think, with some of the um, you know, Bert Stedman's or are we going to see more of a um, you know, more of a Laura Reinbold Senate next year? I mean, I think it's going to be, the numbers are difficult, right? Um, you know, unless they pick up a few seats here or there, I think that you are kind of looking at a spot where it is a Shelley Hughes, Laura Reinbold, Mike Shower kind of Senate. And I think it's going to be incredibly dysfunctional, right? Um, and so, you know, I, I think, um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if you end up with almost like three caucuses in it, to be honest. You end up with, you know, a kind of traditional Republican. You end up with the, I mean, this is, you know, the, the Senate is really a pretty densely kind of wacko republicans you know you look at laura reinbold hughes shower these are people who really consistently been railing against binding caucuses which are you know these sort of agreements saying if you want to be in power you're going to need to help us out pass a budget and it's really the way things get done honestly i mean and it doesn't mean that they don't have any say it just means that they need to as they are going to the vote, they have wrapped up all their sort of inter- interior negotiations beforehand. Um, so, 
I don't know. I mean, it's it's the sort of thing where it's like the, you know, I think the Republicans have been flirting with a very, you know, sort of off the rails Republican kind of conspiratorial Republican sort of streak for a long time. And now it's sort of taken over. And so, you know, I think as things sort of stand right now, I know that that kind of faction is the one that's sort of trying to organize right now. And I think they have, you know, new allies and guys like Roger Holland and Rob Myers. Um, Matt, let's take a second and and just do some quick calculations. And so I'm going to put in some noises here that are like beep, boop, boop, yeah. boop, 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 calculate noises. So so just counting these up, it looks like, um, you know, if Marna wins District B, there's a chance of kind of a like moderate majority party um, that's made up of kind of the traditional like Lyman Hoffman, Donnie Olson, um, Bert Stedman, Gary Stevens, like that kind of like center crowd that's that's held things together the last few years um along with some additions of like maybe tom begich or jesse keel who have you know who by all accounts are very easy to work with and and um have been have been in the senate long enough to have built some of those relationships you know and then the other option is this um is a coalition that's more of like a laura reinbold mike shower shelly hughes group and i don't know like how long like if that group forms, I don't know how long it holds together. I think it has the same problem that that Eastman provided to the House last last year is that, you know, no one wanted to be in that caucus because they knew it was going to explode halfway through session. Right. So I so it'd be it'll be really interesting that I think it's going to just be a, this razor thin line in the Senate this year. And it's going to depend on a couple of these races, uh, what happens. But there's a chance that we'll see a lot of Democrats and a lot of Republicans gather around, let's come to some compromise and figure out this fiscal problem. Um, but there's also a chance that we'll see a really heavy, like pro Dunleavy crowd take over the Senate next year. And that just will be, uh, that could be, that could be remarkable. Yes. That could be something to behold. Yeah. I mean, I think it's going to be a popcorn-y sort of, I mean, it's going to be interesting. We basically went from a Senate that was going you know, 19 to 20, 19 or 20 on every single vote, basically, it was just so like, interestingly lockstep. Um, they because I think, you know, I think Kathy Giesel and Tom Begich did an excellent job kind of pulling that chamber together to work together. And without that, I'm going to be really interested to see where it goes. I, I kind of am not super optimistic about any of it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Shower and Reinpold in particular, and and Hughes to some extent, are very much like iceberg Republicans. Like they are, um, they're willing to just like burn everyone else and go out on their own. Yeah, and it's it's you know, so I don't think that that coalition has much of a chance of like if it forms, it's going to be messy, and if it and if it holds together, I don't know how it will hold together. Right. Um. You know, David Wilson's a little bit more stable, but he's kind of in that same boat. And and, and you know, I think Revac, like he he joined the the Giesel coalition, but I think that was more of a like, um, I think he was more interested in power and and status than he was in, um, you know, policy. And so I don't I don't know that. I think that given the opportunity, he's more likely to side with the the kind of extreme conservative side of the of the of the ticket. Like he's sort of trying to rebrand himself as this like senatorial revac, but I but he's still the guy that was like over in the courthouse building trying to swear in Sharon Jackson with David Eastman last year, right? And yeah. So it's, yeah. So, I mean, I think that I, I think I, I think that was like um, I think that was I think that was a huge tactical error. I think. Um, I mean, yeah. So I, we'll see what happens um, in the Senate. It's it's very much up in the air. Um, the and and then you know like how does the presidential race impact Alaska is going to be a really interesting question. If Trump wins again, uh, you know, like I don't think it's <laughs> like a lot of really smart people who I agree and agree with feel like this is a descent into sort of a, a fascist regime regime for the United States. And I don't disagree with them. Like, I don't think that's, um, you know, I don't think it's hyperbolic to say that like, we're kind of on a, the, a tipping point for our nation right now. Like if we elect Trump, it's going to be like, it's going to be something new that we have not experienced and it's going to, it's going to change everything. But, uh, you know, Dunleavy apparently has him on speed dial. So like uh, there's, you know, maybe that won't harm Alaska as immediately 
as it will harm the rest of the United yeah. States and the rest of the world. Um, but again, that's like, I think that's harm mitigation rather than like any kind of benefit. Yeah, I mean, if it, Biden wins, I, I don't know if that helps. Uh, you know, I don't know if that like what that does to Alaska either. You know, he's, I mean, I think, I, he, maybe we, do, maybe we don't lose the post office. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, I think a big thing is that I think that, you know, I, I think moving forward, the federal government's role in helping municipalities and, and state governments sort of weather the financial storm is going to be really important. And so um, if they're able to sort of take the if, you know, if, if that administration comes in and says, look, you know, we don't we don't want states and local governments going bankrupt, we're going to have to prop them up somehow. That's a big deal. I mean, like, right, that helps our budget out. That's a thing that could yeah. help. And it's something that they've been, you know, Mitch McConnell and Trump have been totally opposed to right now. And so they and they kind of blaming the sort of financial situation that states and local governments are on on themselves They're Oh, you must have made bad decisions if you're in this spot already. So I think that's that's sort of the one sort of ray of hope here is that, you know, maybe there's an infusion of cash that helps out the budget this next year, helps them kick the can one more year, you know. And so I yeah, I, I think it's it's going to be really interesting and, and sort of difficult to really kind of suss out where this all will go depending on who's there but yeah i mean i think a lot of people are extremely concerned about this sort of stuff and you know you see, and you see it sort of creeping into this into the legislature too you know you see um this bizarro stuff from uh from from carpenter you know you look at a lot of people who are kind of going into this sort of racist sort of conspiratorial bullshit that is sort of scary and i hope you know, I hope that that's sort of what some of the things that they're looking, people are looking at when they're considering how they're going to be caucusing this next year. Yeah. So, so what's some good news? Let's end it. Let's end this on a little quick note. So, what's some fun stuff going on for you? What's some good news? I did a really fun project for the League of Women Voters. I, it's the Equal Rights Moose, and sort of based around the the moose character I did on the voting stickers in 2018. And uh, he comes out and says, "Hey, I'm the Equal Rights Moose, and uh, you know, we we need you to support." Uh, you know, support this effort to pass the Equal Rights Amendment. And, you know, I think that's something that's that's really important and that we, we can do. Um, you know, if, if we can push Senator Sullivan into supporting the Equal Rights Amendment, which, which Senator Murkowski is already doing, um, you know, that has a real chance of getting through uh, and becoming the law of the land. It's been ratified by 38 states, and it really just needs, it's kind of like hung up by this small technical thing in the Senate where it just needs a couple more votes. Um, you know, that could be a big deal for a lot of people. Um, the, uh, the other thing is the John Lewis Voting Rights, um, Voting Rights Act is, uh, you know, that's something that, I, uh, that I'm going to work with the league on trying to promote. So I'm doing a lot of kind of like artist activist stuff and, and just trying to get the word out um, about important things that people can get involved in and, um, you know, have their voice heard. I think election time is actually a really good time to... Uh, to try and reach out to candidates because they're they're more uh, they're more willing to listen. They're more you know <laughs> it's a little jaded, but they're they're more forced to listen like yeah. during a campaign season, and they and they have to react to things. So if you know if a hundred people ask Dan Sullivan if he's going to support the Equal Rights Amendment, and he has to say no every time, or I don't know yet, or blah blah, you know that's that's a weak position to be in, and so he's he's going to have to either say something or not say something and that that could impact his race and so um, i'm hoping that by coming up with some like specific issues that need um you know that need support you can either get support for those issues or you can get rid of the candidate that's not supporting those issues mm-hmm. well i was gonna talk about riding a bike ride riding my bike running <laughs> <laughs> mine's just more political bullshit yeah. <laughs> okay well okay tell me about bikes uh no so in anchorage this summer someone realized that if you kind of tie together a bunch of trails it looks like a moose and it's this 32.4 mile loop that um takes you around the city and i think I think so. This year, I, I um, my partner and I bought a house in Anchorage, and um, I've just been kind of walking and enjoying the neighborhood. And um, I think one of the things I just really appreciated about this city, and you know, I think is kind of one of the really valuable kind of things that government does is make parks and trails that are available to everybody you know you don't have to have any money or any sort of you know access or any sort of thing to be able to go to and enjoy the outdoors in these parks um this trail goes you know all around anchorage you see you know you go from mountain view to downtown to you know um 
the coastal trail to Kincaid to South Anchorage and then up Camel Creek trail and it's just you get to see just a sort of wonderful different little areas of the city and it's many many parks that uh the city's you know over a year you know it made you know it's made a long-term investment in these parks to make sure they're great for everybody to be able to enjoy and um I don't know. I think I, I was riding around it and, and, you know, I was watching, there's lots of families that were out and enjoying the sun and a lot of people wearing masks actually. And, yeah. um, I think it kind of made me sort of, you know, appreciate, you know, in a lot of ways, some of the things that go unnoticed and some of the things that I think people forget about being important and valuable to them right now. And I think, um, I think it's just really great. I think I'm really happy to see this sort of stuff going on and, and see that, you know, people have made uh, a long-term effort in, in taking, in valuing this sort of stuff. So, yeah, that's cool. Can you, when, when we post the show, will you put in the note, the show notes, the, the yeah. moose map, moose map of Anchorage? Cause yeah. I think that's great. Yeah. I, and you've, you've jarred something in my, you know, like you've kicked me out of political mode into like, into kind of broader community mode. And I, like one of the really cool things that has been going on in Juneau here is this summer, um, the Goldtown Nickelodeon, which is a, a little local art house theater. Um, they, they haven't been able to screen f- movies inside. And so they just decided to basically run up some scaffolding and get some tarps and start doing drive-in movies. And so there's been just this great kind of transient like hobo drive-in movie theater in Juneau. Um, and, and for, for several months, it was out at the glacier. We got to watch some really cool movies like out at the glacier. We had to watch the thing, which would part of that movie was actually filmed up on the um, ice field there. And so it's really, um, that's been a really fun community thing to be a part of those kind of community events that feel safe and responsible and, and imaginative have been really good. Um, and really kind of heartwarming for me to, to be a part of. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, Hey, that, I think that's a good episode. Um, I'll, uh, I'll hack it together here, uh, when I can, but I'm going to go out and go hiking today. Cause it's been, it is, we've, we've broken all kinds of records for rain in Southeast Alaska. And today is like maybe the last sunny day I will ever see. So I'm going <laughs> to just go, go hike up a mountain. Great. Well, enjoy it. Yeah. I think I'm going to spend the day well, I think I'm gonna have to get out too, but I was gonna, I was kind of planning on painting some a bit today, so we'll see where, where we're gonna go. But great, yeah. All right, well, it's nice, it's nice, nice catching up with you, and uh, let's talk again soon. All right, all right. Okay. okay. Goodbye, Alaska. Goodbye, Alaska. Goodbye, Alaska.